Matthew chapter 19, as we look at another one of Christ's encounters. And uh, we looked at the cleansing at the temple, and he healed the man at the pool of Aseda. We looked at uh, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and the new birth. And now we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Matthew nineteen sixteen through 30. And this encounter of Christ is one of those occasional times in the Bible where Jesus is recorded, where he's giving a personal call to someone to follow him. Now, usually when he called people to follow him or someone to follow him, it was always an indirect call whenever he taught like in the multitudes, you know, and we know that others receive personal calls that aren't specifically recorded in Scripture, like the 12 disciples. You know, when Jesus spoke to the crowds and multitudes and he said, come follow me, he wasn't going you, you, you know, anybody in specific. It was, it was an open invitation for anybody in the crowd to follow him. But then there were those that he pinpointed and said, you come follow me. And that was the case here with the rich young ruler. But there are just a few times in the Bible when the particular individual is called to follow him. Here in our lesson this morning, as I said, it was the rich young ruler. But he rejected Christ's call. Why? Because he loved his earthly riches more than he loved spiritual riches. The incident is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. We have this record of the rich young ruler in Christ in the three Synoptic Gospels. Jesus was at this point making his last trip from Galilee to Judea before he was crucified. And huge crowds were following after him. Now the rich young ruler, in his coming to Jesus, it really looked like he was for real on the surface. But as we're going to see, he wasn't for real. He wasn't sincere. His interest in Jesus wasn't from the whole heart. And he would have fooled a lot of people. But he didn't fool Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus knows man's heart. He knows what's in us. We can't fool him in any way, shape, or form. And when Jesus called this rich young ruler to follow him, that's where it showed that the, the, the young man wasn't sincere. As Jesus has, and his disciples were making their way through Perea, a man came up to Jesus with a question. And it was a question that was probably weighing heavy on his heart and on his mind for some time. Something that he really wanted an answer to. It was the most important of all questions. And it had to do with salvation. It's the most important question that we need to ask. How do I, how, how, is, how is a person saved? How do I become saved? How do I make sure I'm going to heaven? And the person who came up to Jesus had a lot of things going for him. That is, by, by the world standards. He was rich. He was young. He was prominent. He was clean. He was bright and reverent. He was rich, according to our chapter here in verse 22. That is based on worldly standards. He possessed things. And again, he was wealthy. 
He was young, according to verse 20. He probably wasn't more than 40 years old, maybe even younger than that. He was prominent, according to Luke 18, 18, because he was called a ruler. And this could mean that he was probably one of the officials in charge of the local synagogue, a man of reputation. And this was true all the more because he was clean, according to verse 20 here. A man of excellent outward appearance. Excellent outward appearance and behavior. An honorable individual. He was bright. He was eager. But he had this problem on his heart and on his mind. He hadn't found that one thing that had put his soul to rest. And, and, and if you go back to your days before Christ, there, I think we could all attest to experiencing that thing that, that, that we hadn't found that, that put our souls to rest. You know, we lived our lives, we went out and we did whatever we were doing, whether it was partying or alcohol or whatever it was, and, and we thought we were doing good, and, and yet we were still missing something. We weren't completely satisfied in our life. This, this rich young ruler hadn't found that, hadn't found that, that, that one thing that was going to satisfy him. Or, or, you know, he, was, he wasn't happy. He hadn't found the thing that would put his soul to rest. So he was anxious to solve this problem. And, and Mark 10, 17 says he came running to Jesus. He came running to Jesus. And we see last that he was reverent. Which, we, which is clear by the fact that we find out here that he knelt before Jesus, as the reference in Mark seems to show us. So let's begin now with verse 16 of chapter 19. And the young ruler asks, Good teacher, what good things shall I do, notice, shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he thought there was something that he could do to be saved to find eternal life. Now, there is a slight difference in the question, okay, that is asked in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is called teacher here in Matthew. He's called good teacher in Mark and Luke. He, the, the, the ruler says, what good thing in Matthew? And in Mark and Luke, he says, what thing? Now, he also says in Matthew here, that I may possess. In Mark and Luke, he says, that I may inherit. All right? But that doesn't change the story. And a lot of people like to look at the differences in the Gospels or different things in the Bible and say, oh, see, there's a contradiction. You can't trust the Bible. One place it says this, the other says, uh, it says this, and, and, you know, over here it says that. Well, understand, a document can be totally inspired and free from error without it being word for word. Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't reading off of some document. Each one of them saw the same thing, but you see they're recording the incident in their own personal way. For example, if I chose four of you from the congregation right now, and I said, I want one of you to go on each side of the building, one over here, one on the front, one back, and one on the east side. And then I want, and, and I ask you to write down, describe for me what the building looks like. Well, if you're over here, you're going to write down, oh, they got four uh, stained glass windows right here on this, at the, and it's got a, a, a nice tree growing out there, and, 
If you went to the east side, you say, well, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's not really any windows. There's a, a classroom, and then there's a yard and a house on the other side of it. And, you know, if you go out on Center Street and describe it, you say, well, you know, it's, it's all brick facing out there, and it's got a big front yard. And on and the back, it, and then they say, well, it's got a parking lot over here. And you put those four descriptions together, guess what? You've got a whole total different building. Not really. You have, you got four people describing the building the way they saw it. But it's the same building. So it's the same thing here. The, 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 the writers are describing this incident of Christ meeting the rich young ruler in the way they saw it. So again, it, it, there's nothing contradictory. And, and so again, they're just describing it in their own words and in their own way. So... If you want to know about salvation, all right, go to Christ. This is the important thing here. The rich young ruler realized, I'm missing something. He realizes he hasn't attained everlasting life. And this is what made him restless and anxious, and rightly so. We need the answer to the most important question in life. How can I be saved? How do I know I'm going to heaven? And by going to Jesus, he went to the right source to make sure. So if you want to make sure you get the right answer about salvation and heaven and eternal life, you have to go to the right source. You have to go to God's word. And just how well the young ruler understood what everlasting life was all about, we don't know. We don't know how much he knew. And if life or if living means, you know, being active and alive in your environment, then everlasting life would mean a never-ending life in the best environment of all, which would be the heavenly life because it's fellowship with the living God. Other beautiful descriptions that speak of, of, of heaven is uh, Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 2 Corinthians 4.6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. 1 Peter 1.8, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So you see, life everlasting is another name for salvation. Even though this man was wealthy, he didn't let his riches keep him from the most important of spiritual things. But he was making a terrible mistake. It's clear by his question, Jesus, what good thing shall I do that, may, that I may have eternal life? You see, he believed in salvation by works. What shall I do? This becomes even clearer when you read verse 16 and then you, you look at it and you compare it to verse 20. Now, since the heart of good works is found in the Ten Commandments, it's not surprising to hear what, you know, uh, hear uh, Jesus ask in verse 17. Notice what he asks the, 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 the rich young ruler. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, notice, keep the commandments. And there's no doubt what God demands in his law is good because God himself is the greatest good. 
Why ask Jesus, though, about that which is good, when the Father has certainly made it known? If the young man thinks he's going to be able to receive everlasting life by doing good, then by all means, keep the commandments. But isn't that what the man says he's been doing in verse 20? I've been keeping them since I was a kid. Look at verses now, uh, verse 19 and, uh, 18 and 19. Jesus gets specific now. He said to him, which ones, Jesus said. Or I should, yeah, the young man gets specific with Christ, wants to know what good commandments he should be keeping. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the young man's attitude toward keeping the commandments was superficial. Because says, well, what other ones should I do? What specific ones? Not at all was he in agreement with Jesus' deeply spiritual penetrating, uh, penetrating interpretation. That is clear from his reaction. Notice in verse 20. Well, I've been doing all these things since my youth. <laughs> what could I be lacking? I'm a really good boy. I've been doing it all. What do I lack? So here we can see his shallow self-righteousness is struggling with deep dissatisfaction. Although he's been doing all these things since he's been, since he's been a youth and, you know, he's got all... I mean, everything says that this, this guy is right on. But something is still not making him completely fulfilled. This young man tries to make himself believe that his life is okay, that everything's okay. And yet on the inside, he's, he's shaken up. He's missing something and he senses it. He knows something isn't right in his life. It's missing. You see, he has the ritual. He has the ceremony. He has the commandments. But he doesn't know the God of the commandments. He doesn't know the God of the ritual. He doesn't know the God of the ceremonies. Has he really loved his neighbor as himself? If he has, then why doesn't he have peace of mind? Why doesn't he have a heart that had made him, why uh, does he have a heart that made him run up to Jesus with this anxious question? What do I still lack? He doesn't have the mind and heart of one who truly loves his neighbor as himself. Did his inward conscience convict him of the truth that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20 when Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Was this bothering him? Was that why, even though he tried hard to believe in his own righteousness and respectability, he was actually feeling uneasy? He couldn't understand what, why am I feeling the way I do? He seems, to be, he, he seems to be saying, what additional good must I do over and above all the many good things I've already done? Because I have been observing God's law since I was a youth. And Jesus probably looking at this man with love for him that's kneeling in front of him not only appreciated this young man's concern for morality and good outward behavior, but he also must have been pitied. He must have also pitied him because of the struggle that he was going through. 
You know, and I've seen those people going through those struggles and you share the word of God with them. And you know, you don't have to go through this. You don't have to live like this. You can be delivered from this if you'll come to Christ. They want to be delivered, but they don't want Christ. Any other way. Any other way but Christ. And that's basically where this man is. And again, that's, is that why he was feeling this, this uneasiness? Jesus, was, again, he, he, he must have, Christ must have pitied him because, it, 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 you know, when you see people struggling and, and you're trying to share the Lord with them and, and you go, you know that if you, if you came to the Lord, you know, he may not take away all of your problems, but you know what? He will enable you to deal with your problems. And some he may take away. But you see, Jesus knew that there was something terribly wrong with this rich young ruler. His material possessions had him in bondage. Did he really love his neighbor as himself? No, he didn't. Was he really willing to follow God through Jesus Christ everywhere that he would lead him? No, he wasn't. As verse 21 shows us, notice. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect... Go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, by what Jesus is asking here, isn't he asking, isn't he basically supporting salvation by good works? Hey, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll be saved. Shouldn't Jesus have told the rich young ruler, trust in me instead? Well, that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. Because you see, without total confidence in and self-surrender to the one who was giving the order to the rich young ruler, he couldn't, couldn't be expected to sell everything he had and give the, the proceeds to the poor. Did he really want to be perfect? Which means fully mature. Well, this was the test here. If he obeys the Lord's commands, he will have treasure in heaven. And the reference to treasure is to all of those blessings that are heavenly in quality and experience completely. They're reserved for God's children in heaven and of which we can experience a foretaste even now. And it's important to see that Jesus added with that, go go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus followed that with, and then come follow me. Because you see, following along with preparing for active witness bearing would imply that the the rich young ruler must learn to deny himself and take up his cross. And as a result, he would no longer be able to devote himself to serving mammon. You see, if he got rid of the possessions that he was in bondage to and he gave them to the poor and he followed Jesus, he wouldn't have time to, to be devoted to his possessions. He'd be out witnessing for Christ and serving Christ instead of serving mammon. But his answer to Jesus was terrible. Look at verse 22. When the young man heard that, in other words, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. When the young man heard that, it says that he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. He was sorrowful. Mark says his countenance fell with the two choices in front of him. 
to either surrender to Jesus or hang on to his material wealth, he chooses his material wealth. The demand Jesus made on this confused man was the right one for this particular situation and state of mind. Because you see, the Lord doesn't ask everybody to do the same thing. For example, Abraham was asked to make a sacrifice. The rich young ruler here was asked to make a sacrifice. But the sacrifice that Abraham was asked to make was by far greater than the young ruler's sacrifice. But you see, the difference is Abraham's willingness to make the sacrifice proved that he was a man of genuine faith. The rich young ruler, on the other hand, who was asked to make a much lesser sacrifice, refused, proving that he didn't have the faith by which salvation is accepted. Paul said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The man thought he could be saved by, by himself, by the things that he did. Jesus, no, it's an act of faith. Abraham placed his trust in God. The young ruler placed his faith in his goodies, in his riches, in his possessions. That was the difference. The young ruler had a lot of property. Now, the problem was that, wasn't that he had a lot of property. The problem was that the property had him. He owned a lot, of, and again, it wasn't that he owned a lot of property. The problem was that the property owned him. You know, it had him tightly in its grasp. Verses 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth makes it hard for a person to turn to Jesus for salvation. Why? They trust in their wealth. People who have money don't need God. They don't need to pray. They can shell out the money to fix their problem. They can shell out their money for for medical expenses that others might not have. They don't worry about making the rent. They don't worry about, you know, a lot of the the things that we worry about or, or have difficulties with sometimes in our lives. They just write out a check, fixes everything. That's why Jesus said it's it's hard for, for those who are rich to get into the kingdom of God makes it hard for a person to turn to Christ because their trust is in their wealth. Deuteronomy 8, 17 says, Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gained me wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You know, this, this first part of Deuteronomy 8, 17 is where a lot of these uh, health or wealth prosperity, uh, prosperity uh, teachers uh, say you, you shouldn't be poor because they read this to you. Uh, then you say in your, it says, my power and, my, and the might of my hand has given me this wealth. And they'll take this and they'll, see, you're, you're not supposed to be poor. My power and the might of my hand hath gained me this wealth. And yet it says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You see, he gives you the ability to get wealth. And again, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy as long as they don't possess us. 
And we recognize, you know what? I have what I have because of the Lord God. He's given me the ability to go to school and get an education and to work and, and, and to have a job. He's given that all to me. And I give him the glory. It's not that I've done this myself. I'm a self-made man and I did this through my own whatever, and, you know, and, and God didn't have anything to do with it. But wealth doesn't have to keep you out of heaven, but it keeps a lot of people out of heaven. When he said it was easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God. The eye of a needle is a phrase that was, was familiar, a familiar saying in that day which spoke of impossibility. And Jesus used this saying to emphasize the great problem that a rich person has getting saved. Because they're, so usually, they're usually so taken up by their worldly possessions that they don't care much about heavenly things. Listen to the reaction of the disciples when he heard Jesus say this in verse 25. Notice, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And these words show that, that their great astonishment wasn't just moment, a momentary thing, but it lasted for a while. Because for them to come to this conclusion, they probably had to think that even though not all men are rich, and some are even poor and want to become rich, that all men, rich and poor alike, trust in their riches so they can't be saved. But then they receive this encouraging good news uh, from Jesus in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When Jesus tells his disciples, With God all things are possible, that's exactly what he means. That's exactly what he means. At every point in our life, from beginning, middle to end, man is totally dependent upon God for salvation. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, 5 through 9, Why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches. Yet, notice, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Notice the psalmist says, hey, you can't pay God enough to be saved. It's costly. The cross shows you how costly redemption is. If he is to be saved at all, he must be born again, John 3, 3 tells us. And even though the rich young ruler reaches out to God here, in order to do this, he has to be enabled and supported every day, every hour, every minute, and every second by God's all-powerful grace from the day we get saved to the day we die. We're supported by the almighty grace of God every moment, every hour, every second of the day. But here's the problem. The young man's religion, which was the current religion among the Jews of that day and age, there was no room for him in his religion for salvation, for God's salvation. That's why he stood condemned here. There was no room for Christ. And the means of salvation, which was Christ, because in their religion, they didn't believe in Christ. It was about works. But thank God there is still a way out. What is, what, is, what is impossible with men is possible with God. 
with whom all things are possible. It is God through Christ who is able to save us to the uttermost, Hebrews says. Now, Peter, he's still thinking about what Jesus said here to the rich young ruler in verse 21. Jesus asked him, the rich young ruler, to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. And was promising the rich young ruler if he did this, he would have treasure in heaven. And then Peter, he reacts to what Jesus said. Notice in verse 27. See, he's speaking to Christ. Jesus said, Peter, uh, Peter said to the Lord, we have left all and followed you, Lord. Therefore, what shall we have? Now, didn't the 12 disciples do exactly what Jesus asked the young ruler to do? They had left everything, businesses, families, and they followed Christ. The answer would seem to be clear that the 12 disciples would also have treasure in heaven then. But Peter doesn't seem to be totally sure about this. Because Jesus had also declared that that with men it is impossible to be saved and that it is God alone who imparts salvation. And then Peter and the others, they get a very comforting answer. Jesus reassures them in verses 28 and 29, but that's followed with a warning in verse 30, as we'll see. Look what Jesus told them in verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you that in the, re- in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, notice, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a great promise this is. Especially when we think about the men that it was given to who are lacking perfection. They will be richly rewarded for their sacrifice that they've made and that, are, that they're still making. He goes on to say, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. The reward Jesus refers to here in the passage was definitely promised to the 12 disciples as well. The reward is for the 12 disciples. They would receive a great reward because in the millennium, see, in the regeneration, they would be given a high position. The book of Revelation also says that their names will be inscribed on the foundation of New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 14. The disciples gave up much, but they're going to receive much, much more in return. You see, we can't, we can't ever give God or sacrifice so much that God's not going to give us more. Whatever good things that they had forsaken for Jesus Christ would be returned to them, he said, a hundredfold. In other words, notice, don't think of it, uh, think of it as we're sacrificing stuff. We're sacrificing things. We're investing in our lives. We're investing. But, may, but, but not all of the dividends that we're going to receive will be in this life. An even broader promise is given to all, the, all believers in verse 29. Jesus said, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands, for my my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. This promise is for all who have 
in their life chosen Jesus Christ above everybody and everything else and have sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Even above the nearest relatives and the most prized possessions that they have. They have made the sacrifice, Jesus said, for my name's sake. The name of Jesus indicates himself as he's revealed revealed himself to the people. And these loyal followers of Christ, they're going to receive a hundredfold. In other words, they're going to be reimbursed many times over for what they have sacrificed. Even the many blessings in the here and now will they experience, but many more in the afterlife. And to the apostles and to the believers in general, Jesus has given rich promises. Now here's an important question. Does this mean that the promised blessings will be theirs no matter how they conduct themselves here? Not at all. Because a lot of people think that once they get saved, they can live however they want here and they're still going to go to heaven. That's not biblical. And people would say, well, doesn't the Bible say, or doesn't Jesus say he died for all of our sins? Yeah, he did. But, But he says, when we sin, we are to come and confess them and receive forgiveness for them. And we're not to practice sin important to understand that it's only in the way of trust and obedience that the promises of God are given and delivered to his children we are to trust and obey and then we receive the blessings God does not reward disobedience and unfaithfulness he doesn't We will only receive the blessings as we conduct ourselves here on this earth in obedience and trust to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter said in verse 27, look, we've left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Now, Peter's question, when when he asked this question of the Lord, this may have been why Jesus gave the warning in verse 30. Jesus may have well meant something like this. Peter... Now, your question is right and proper, but it's easy to make the mistake, Peter, of expecting a reward based on supposed merit, based on what you have done. So Jesus says, I have to warn you, Peter, that I have to warn you so that you're not caught by surprise. Because I think one day a lot of people, when they stand before God, are going to be surprised. It's not going to turn out for them the way they thought it would. Jesus in verse 30 said to all the disciples, he said, but many, notice, many who are first will be last and the last shall be first. Jehovah said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not see as man sees. Notice that. You know, God's not going to be judging us based on the way we think he should and how how we see ourselves. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So when he speaks about the first being last, the first 
are those who, because of their wealth, education, position, prestige, talents, and whatever else of their own merit they've done, they are highly regarded by men in general. Sometimes even by God's children, they're highly regarded. But because God sees and knows the heart of men, He knows the heart of these very same people. They are assigned by Him to a position behind the others. In fact, some of those people may even be totally excluded from the halls of glory, like those in Matthew 21 through 23, remember? Oh, they thought they were right on. Lord, Lord, we did this and this and this, and they went on down down the line, and Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Depart from me. There doesn't seem to be any good reason for saying that Jesus meant that all of those who shall be last are going to be lost or outside the kingdom. Some may be, but not all. The truth is, not only are there degrees of suffering in hell, according to Luke 12, 47 through 48, but there are also degrees of glory in the restored universe in 1 Corinthians 15, 41 through 42. And there will be surprises. Not only will many of those who are now regarded as the very pillars of the church be last, but also many who never made the spotlight. Those who are serving, you know, behind the scenes, like the poor widow who gave the two mites, and Mary of Bethany, who, who, who you know, did an act of, of, of lavish, living lavishly uh, on the Lord, was severely criticized by the, the disciples, shall be first on the day of judgment. And, in clo- and here's something as we close for all to think about. The disciples, remember, constantly bickering back and forth about who was going to be first in the kingdom of God. Better pay attention to what Jesus said. Father, we come before you and thanking you for your word, Lord. We thank you for Again, this beautiful encounter that Christ had with the rich young ruler, Father. Lord, help us to, Father, understand what Jesus requires. What the Bible's requirements are for eternal life, God. Holiness, God. Holiness in our life upon which our salvation hinges. But getting saved is only the beginning. The Bible says we are being saved as well. We are saved, but we're being saved day by day. Sanctified day by day as we live for Christ. As we deny ourselves every day the temptations that this world sets before us. This, the temptations that, that, that we have to fight every day, God. And not practicing sinful living. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 teach us that practicing sin, it said that, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul was talking to believers. We cannot practice sin and then think we're going to make it to heaven. Corrupt living will keep us out of the kingdom doesn't mean that we have to be sinless and uh, uh, perfect because we can't. 
but we strive to be Christ-like. And we'll fall, we'll sin, but then we're to confess that sin, seek forgiveness of that sin, And then Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us. We live in His righteousness. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've never received Christ. Or you're not sure if you're going to heaven. Or maybe you've thought like a lot of other people that I'm a good person I've done a lot of good things and that should get me into heaven it won't only Jesus can get you into heaven it's not by what any man does it's by what Jesus did for us and we have to claim the cross we have to claim the blood in order to be saved the worship team is going to lead us in a song right now. And if God's word is spoken to you and you recognize like the rich young ruler, I'm missing something. I don't feel fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. Then it's Christ that you're missing. So as we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, You get up out of your seat. Make your way down the aisles to the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together. A prayer of faith.